Hello, how's everyone doing today? We're here with the one and only uh, Stefan Kinsella. Stefan Kinsella is an IP attorney and anti-IP uh, or IM, which it probably should be called. Um, how are you doing today? Very well. How, how about yourself? Good. Um, so I think we have a lot of interesting topics. It was funny. So you, sh you sent me uh, a link to some... Uh, debate or discussion you were having with some guy named Quell, I think is his name. I don't know. I thought it oh, sounded no. like... It's, it's, it's a lady, Queen Nelson. She's a, a, a respected philosopher and a friend of mine. She's a minarchist. And uh, her, her comments just illustrated the same type of confusion I've seen dozens or if not hundreds of times over the last um, couple of decades on um, differences between minarchy, libertarianism, property rights libertarianism and, you know, mainstream type thinking. Queen Nelson, that's her name. Queen Nelson. But one of the things that I thought was interesting was she was saying uh, anarchism is an empirical question. But I, my response is, what do you mean? There are hundreds of governments which exists. And I said this to your favorite minarchist of all time, Jen Elfeld, uh, which is, there are hundreds of governments which exist. How many of them are minarchy? We know the answer to that question. Zero. Yeah, none. none. So I, I don't see the empiricism being on the side of, of government, right? I mean, government's the biggest mass murderer on earth. Well, that's right. And uh, minarchists sometimes accuse anarchists of being sort of utopians or idealistic because they think the, the anarchy we advocate is unrealistic. But they advocate a limited state, which has never existed in the history of mankind, and there's good reason to think it can never exist. And even if it did, it still wouldn't be just. But their view is actually more unrealistic than anarchist is. It's really impossible to imagine um, a state that would stay limited. Well, I, there's no incentive for it to, right? I mean, one of the no. questions that I would ask the minarchists is, from a realistic standpoint, why would government stay minarchy? They have no good answer to that. Right. It's mainly because I want it to, <laughs> right? I mean, well, because they think that everyone should read Atlas Shrugged, and I guess they would imagine that there's an ideal constitution that Judge Narragansett would write, which is the American Constitution modified slightly, and we would all just agree by the force of reason to ab uh, abide by that or something. I don't know. Well, yeah, I mean, they they totally ignore public choice economics and just the way common sense shows that human society works. Um, if you have an agency like the state, there is just simply no doubt that, as Hayek pointed out, the worst will rise to the top. People that lust for power will rise to the top, and as public choice economics shows, you know they will have a concentrated interest in pushing for a narrow thing that everyone else only has a diffuse interest in opposing. And therefore, they won't oppose it, and they will get passed. And over time, you'll have regulatory capture, you'll have mission creep, you'll have agencies that grow and grow and grow and expand. Um, this is what we've seen time and time again, and this is what theory shows us will happen. So the idea of a limited state is a pipe dream. Not only that, the idea of a limited state is a confusing term because all states are limited in the sense that they're not omnipotent. So all states have limits on their powers. So saying you're in favor of a limited state is really saying nothing because every state that's ever existed in the world is limited. Mm -hmm. So the question is what limits do you want? 
Now, what they think, what they mean, I think, is they want the kind of uh, Night Watchman set or the Minarchist set of limits. Like, there's a strict written constitution that prevents the state uh, from going beyond these boundaries of doing the minimal set of core functions of, uh, you know, uh, the police, the military, maybe the courts, and everything else is forbidden. Um, so I think that's what they mean by limited government, but the term is unfortunate, I think, and misdescriptive. No, no, I, I agree. I, 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 I tell people that I believe in um, less government and what's less than zero. Um, yeah, I like that. I like that. Well, actually, I would say I like less state. To me, the, the other problem is the, is, the, is the conflation of the word government with state. Um, most people use government and state as roughly synonyms. So we, we anarchists or anti-state libertarians say we're anti-state or we, we complain about the government. But you'll find a minarchist or a classical liberal or a pro-statist, and they will use an equivocation. That is, what they will say is governance means the governing institutions of society, you know, like law, justice, the courts, and everyone agrees with that, right? And we agree, yes. So they'll say, well, you believe in government, and you might say, okay, with that definition, I agree. And then they'll say, well, then you believe in the state because then they equate state with the government. So I'm… I try lately to be careful not to actually use the word government as um, as a, a synonym for state because government has an ambiguous meaning. It could mean the private institutions of governance. In, a, in an anarchist society, it could mean the government is the – or the institutions of law and order, which would exist, I believe. So it's really the state. Which is precisely defined, you know, as a as a monopolistic uh, agency or entity um, claiming the monopolized right to adjudicate disputes in a given territory and or to tax citizens um, in that area. That's what the state is. Government is a more ambiguous uh, term. But mm -hmm. but then you have arguments like someone was just arguing with me the other day. Uh, which is there are all these disagreements on what even constitutes aggression. Like even among anarchists, there's disagreements. Is abortion is intellectual property? So that you're not going to have a cohesion where everyone agrees. Even if people who are dedicated to that violence should only be used defensively, well, people have different meanings on what that means. And without a uh, government, the argument goes one. Uh, then people are just going to be disagreeing. Well, why should I be punished for that? I don't think that's considered aggression. And then now you have people just do whatever they want, or now they're fighting, and so the government is necessary to to stop that, I guess. So even so, even so, at least people know this is what you're not allowed to do, and now you're you're saving time arguing about what it is you're not allowed to do. I think that's right, but I think that gets to at least two different issues. One is more like um, the issue of what's our basic overall goal, and you know, as a general matter, I think that we libertarians, kind of as a rough group, we're in favor of society, cooperation, human civilization, people getting along with each other, trying to find a way to live and leave happy. Everyone can possibly live a happy life in this world, the world of challenges that we face, right? And the purpose of a political philosophy and of a political system is to set down rules of interaction so that. You know, you have to face disease and hardship and scarcity, um, and you know, natural forces and nature that are dangerous. But at least, if we agree with each other, we can cooperate and we can agree not to harm each other. So that when we need to use resources, 
at least the obstacle in your path is not a fellow human being, um, at least not of the people that have agreed to be part of society. Um, you know, you still might face uh, drought, pestilence, you know, disease, uh, other dangers from the real world, but at least with norms or with rules, we can reduce the chance of other people interfering with our use of these means to try to achieve a good life in the world, and we can more successfully have the division and specialization of labor, cooperate with each other, have society, have an advanced economy, um, um, etc. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. Um, I, I also think all arguments that I've heard uh, against anarchy assumes that human beings are self-destructive people. Like people, you know, always give all these examples where the the implication behind it is that we're just suicidal and we're, we want with in the absence of government, people are just going to do things which are so idiotic that that they couldn't live their life. And my my at least my response always is if something seems completely idiotic, then why are you imagining that people are going to continually do it? Well, not only that, if you think people are so you know, base and evil and incompetent or whatever, why would giving them the centralized power of the state make them better? I mean, you're going to have the same human beings populate the offices of the state, and they will tend to abuse that power even worse. So you don't get any, you know, you don't get any advantage from taking corrupt human beings and giving them more and more physical power over each other. Um, the response to that, I guess, is well, they don't like to hear that because that means their utopia is not achieved. It means their utopia is not attainable because we can't have it without a state. We can't have it with a state. They don't like to hear that. So I think they resort to the state partly out of utopian, uh, partly out of utopian goals. Right. And whenever whenever I hear that response, I I say, oh, so you must be a fan of. Uh, well, not obviously not democracy. Then you have to be a fan of monarchy, because at least you know with that argument you could say, well, we need people who are made from a finer clay than the rest of mankind, and only a few people are that way, and they have to lead us. But if most people are bad or suicidal, then why would you want these very same people you're afraid of to run for office and to vote? Why do you trust people to to know enough to vote, but not know enough to make the decisions that they're voting for? I don't get that. Yeah, I know. It's a bizarre um, – there's like an egalitarian presumption sometimes uh, among these people, which is why they don't want to admit that it might be better to have elites that run the world you know, in a sense, right? hierarchies. Um, they don't want to admit that, and so that's part of the motivation, motivating force behind democracy, I think, is that everyone gets an equal voice, an equal vote, uh, all this kind of stuff, even though most of the people that proclaim these ideas – believe themselves to be some kind of academic or intellectual elites so they kind of contradict their you know their whole philosophy mm-hmm. yeah no I agree anyway um, so let's let's get back to, to some of the, the issues well, let's some get back let's get back to the thing you mentioned earlier I didn't finish my um, oh sorry my response to you on the aggression issue so one question you could ask is that Given that there could be disagreements among people about what constitutes aggression or impermissible rules, what does that imply about how humans can organize society? And evidently, it is possible for people to agree on at least a large amount of things, right? That's why we have society so far for the last several thousand years. Um, 
so we have enough the possibility of having enough social cooperation and enough agreement on the common rules that we can have some benefit from having the adoption of these rules, right? Society among each other. And then the question about aggression, and we, this might blend into the theory question, which I think you were about to start asking. Um, you say like libertarians don't all agree on even libertarians don't agree on what aggression is, um, and these kinds of issues like abortion and things like that. I think partly it's because these issues are new and they're difficult. Um, I do think we should realize that even if we stumble and we have trouble answering some hard questions, that doesn't imply anything about our f political philosophy because there's nothing better. No other political philosophy handles these questions better. I mean in philosophy there's this famous trolley example like there's a big dilemma. You know, you have a trolley racing out of control down the street and you can it's going to hit five people and kill them. But you have the chance to flip the switch and make it go down another path and there's only one person there and you would kill that person. And most people would agree it's better or it's less bad to kill one person than to kill five people. But the question is morally should you switch the lever? And you know philosophers talk about this. This is a famous problem in philosophy and it's fine to think about but it's not a criticism of the libertarian non-aggression principle because this philosophical ethical dilemma is difficult for anyone. It's difficult for a communist. It's difficult for a fascist. It's difficult for a social democrat. There's no answer. All this means is there's sometimes bad things in life. So the fact that you pose a problem that the libertarian mindset doesn't have an instant solution to says literally nothing about the validity of the libertarian um, approach unless you could show there was another philosophy that handled such issues and other important issues on a reliable basis in a better way, and no one ever does because they can't be. That's why these problems uh, are dreamt up. So when you come to questions like abortion and things like this, these are just the difficult gray areas, continuum issues, problematic issues of moral life, um, and really… It's just a bizarre attack on libertarianism to say that, well, you have this brand new consistent approach to liberty and ethics, which is which challenges our welfare statism or whatever we have. And because it can't answer the abortion issue to everyone's satisfaction or the trolley problem, we're going to reject it and keep our welfare state. And that's just not a good argument um, uh, at all. And then the second approach to this this question you asked is about aggression, and I would say that libertarians need to get a, a more foundational understanding of the, the nature of rights, the nature of property rights, the nature of property, the nature of government and the state, right, and the nature of aggression and why we say – why a lot of libertarians say, well, you can summarize our view in the NAP, the non-aggression principle, or as some people call it the ZAB, the zero aggression principle, right? And what happens is they rightly point out some of our critics or some of our detractors or some people questioning all this. They'll say, well, not everyone agrees on what aggression is, or they'll say that aggression is not primary, and my answer to that is they're correct. Aggression is not a primary concept. Aggression is a shorthand description of the set of property norms that we libertarians believe in. 
Okay, so this is what gets you to the issue that you and I talked about as the kind of core of the show, uh, the focus today. Um, the nature of what property rights are, what rights are, what the libertarian basically ethical norm is, and how it relates to aggression and property. So if you want, we can turn to some of those issues now, so I'll let you take it whatever direction you like. Sure. I, I, I do want to talk about those issues in a second, but I just want to respond sure. to the, the trolley car thing first. Mm -hmm. uh, first of all, I'm, I'm a bit of a cynic. I think people use the trolley car merely as an excuse to justify the violation of other people's rights. I, I, I actually agree with you completely. I was trying to be a little bit generous, but I think actually you're probably right. In most cases, that's that's really what they're doing. Right, so it's it's just an attempt. Like when you were when you were um, uh, with Jan Helfeld, he was saying, "Well, it, would you eat food right uh, in the woods if you were starving?" And he asked right. me this question, and he wouldn't shut up, so I couldn't really answer it. But one of the things, first of all, I wanted to say to him two things. One, what I would do is irrelevant. I might yeah. murder, I might rape. That right. doesn't make murder or rape good. Right. Uh, so my behavior is irrelevant to what. Yeah, he's trying to prove you to be. A hypothetical hypocrite, even though you're not. I mean, even and even proving you that you're a real hypocrite would be irrelevant to the validity right. of an argument you might right. make. But but the bigger point, and that's why I want to bring this up, is that uh, you, what I would say to Jen Helfeld uh, or to the people who use this, would you violate property rights in the woods? Uh, would be uh, you you have to do a cost benefit analysis. I think taking someone's food without their permission and then getting punished for it, which wouldn't be the death penalty, it has to be proportional, is less of a loss than starving to death. So so you're still consistent. Yes, even though it's an emergency situation, you still have to reimburse the guy. Otherwise, what is Jen Helfeld or, or these other people saying? That in an emergency, you could steal someone guy's, someone's food without their permission, and then when they ask for a restitution, you could say, go fuck yourself, I was starving? Well, not, uh, not only that, in the real world that we actually live in, that has society, most people would actually allow you to use their property in such a case. And if you used it without their permission, they would probably just let it go, right? And if they were a dick about it and wanted to push it and they pushed it too hard, they're going to be ostracized and shunned and seen to be, you know, a kind of outcast in society. It's just not going to be the major problem in society. Emergency situations and how misanthropes and hermits respond to it. It's just a bizarre attack on libertarianism. Mm -hmm. No, I, 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 I agree. I mean, th that's one of the things that sort of annoys me about a lot of people that they don't that most uh, of our interactions in life, uh, you know, well, without government, how you know you're not supposed to murder? Uh, there was uh, there's a great stand-up comedian where he was criticizing the Ten Commandments, and he was saying, "Do you know what the problem with the Ten Commandments were? That they had to be written down. That yeah. you couldn't think for yourself. Don't murder or don't steal. Uh, that you need to read a book to do this, right? As Penn Jillette said, you know, whenever whenever a religious person says to me, well, without God, what's stopping you to rape and murder and kill? He's saying, well, what are you saying? That that you want to rape and murder and kill right. and thank God for holding me back? <laughs> well, yeah, that's kind of like the homosexual argument. It's like uh, all these uh, these homophobes who are – they're terrified of homosexuality becoming, uh, I guess, accepted as a minority position because – I guess because they think everyone wants to be gay really secretly, and they're afraid that they're just <laughs> looking for an excuse, and if they just get one little suggestion that's – Publicly legitimized, are just going to become gay. I mean, it's bizarre. Um, 
I get the same thing with on intellectual property all the time. I mean, so I come up with a coherent, calm, I think reasonable uh, example or argument against intellectual property showing why it's not just. And you know, nine times out of ten, the response is, "Well, don't you have a copyright in your books?" <laughs> you know, it's like they just cannot have a coherent, honest discussion or thought about this. And a person ate, and a person in, in prison ate prison food, and the people in the Holocaust ate the bread right. and the soup. What right. vile hypocrites! Right, right. So it's it's kind of like a bizarre, uninformed ad hominem argument, and it's usually wrong. It's like, well, no, actually. Well, yes, I have a copyright in my books because your copyright system gives me one. <laughs> I'm happy to give it away, but your copyright system won't let me give it away. And of course, the easy response there is it's just offensive. So I'll, I'm having a copyright, so you don't write the book and then have a copyright and then sue me. So it has nothing to do with me. Uh, the, yeah, that that's that's actually not that's actually more true in trademark and patent. It's it's actually legally speaking that that argument is not. Exactly correct in terms of copyright. Um, if you, if I, if I were not, if I were going to not copyright something I'd written, it doesn't mean someone else can copyright it. But the whole premise is wrong because it's not possible for me to not copyright it because I never copyrighted it in the first place. As soon as I write it down, <laughs> this is what the this is what people don't understand. The law says something. They don't even understand the law that they're that they're uh, that they're proposing that they're in favor of. The law says that if ever since 19, I think 82 or 88, I've forgotten when, it, when the Berne Convention was implemented in the U.S. The late 80s, mid 80s. As soon as you write down something, it's called you fix it in a tangible medium of expression. You have a copyright in it automatically. Federal law gives it to you. You don't have to put the copyright notice on it. You don't have to register it with the copyright office. You have a copyright whether you want it or not. As soon as you write something down. You and I have a copyright right now in this YouTube video because we're producing it. Every word that comes out, we're being copyrighted. We, we're receiving a copyright in it. We can't help it. So to blame us for hypocrisy for something that the law is doing to us is just ridiculous. Yeah, it's it's it, it's it's you know it's it's funny because I've been called a hypocrite for using government services, but never a hypocrite for paying taxes. So. Um, Oh, I've heard that one too. I mean, did, didn't the terrorists in uh, in Paris recently, when they attacked the uh, uh, either the, the I think the the ones that attacked the Jewish uh, deli, the kosher deli, they were telling the uh, their hostages that they had paid taxes, which supported the Fr French government's military actions against fellow Muslims, and therefore they're responsible for it. And they were like. Well, we didn't have a choice about paying the taxes. We didn't pay taxes. They took taxes. I mean, maybe we should stop saying we pay taxes. We 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 have taxes taken from us, you know. Well, there is a comedian, Michael Shea, who said that. But uh, yeah. Oh yeah, that's right. I think I did hear that. Yeah, I think I just I just stole his idea. This attribution works. You sometimes forget your influences. You can't steal ideas. What do you mean you stole his that's idea? That's true. That's true. Yeah, he's like uh, we owe China. Eleven trillion dollars. We, I don't know, trying to shit. Uh, <laughs> we owe Sprint ninety dollars. Yeah, or, uh, or some libertarians will say China doesn't exist because China's the name of a state, and states don't exist. It's just a fiction of your imagination. Yeah, that's right. I don't know. Anyway, let's. Oh, fine. So let's let's get back to our previous conversation: the origin of uh, property rights. Why don't, why don't you talk a little bit about that? Well, what provoked this was this, and I've done the talk before uh, two or three times um, to different groups. 
and um, I'll give you the links later, and maybe you can put them either here or wherever we post this. That's good. On different f fallacies and reasoning of libertarians, uh, different uh, uncareful use of terms, uh, inappropriate use of metaphors, equivocation, sloppy thinking, and this is just an example of that, but it's an important one, and it comes up all the time, and it comes up from both outsiders and insiders. Outsiders, I mean non-libertarians, and insiders, I mean like um, either minarchist libertarians who want to find a way to avoid the natural conclusion of libertarian principles, which is anarchy, um, or um, unprincipled libertarians, I call them, people that are just kind of… they're libertarian-ish, but they avoid putting it in terms of rights or principles. Because they think that's too dogmatic or something, you know. Uh, they just similar to the people that say I don't like labels, and I call those people non non labelers. You know what I mean? <laughs> people that say they don't like labels, I find are the stupidest people I ever talked to. Because basically, you, what you're saying is you're not a human being. Because human beings are the language, you know, the animals that, the animals that are intelligent enough to use language, and language is the use of symbols that denote concepts. Which is yeah. how we understand the world. We take percepts, <laughs> we we form them into concepts, which you could call labels. I mean, to it's say like, you're against labels is just like one of the stupidest things I've ever heard. It's in my also life. it's also like when people say, "I don't care what other people think." When why are you telling yeah, other? People yeah, that? I know. It's just like a self contradiction, <laughs> you know, like right there. Yeah, I, I, I uh, uh, yeah, for one of Hoppe's uh, books I reviewed, and I love Hoppe. He's my my biggest influence. He dedicated it to Rothbard, and he had some some comment like, uh, uh, "Words can't express my gratitude to Rothbard." And I I, I kind of jokingly criticized him in the footnote. I said, "Well, but you're using words to explain the how much you are grateful to him." But anyway, um, there's all these playful examples. But no, those are more serious uh, intellectual errors. So, on the topic of aggression, I think that what we need to realize we need to go back and think about what the what the nature of libertarianism is. In, in fact, what the nature of all political theory is, and I'll, uh, the reason I bring this up is because you need to do this for several reasons, but one of them is to counter this repeated uh, argument I hear, which Queen Nelson raised recently, which I've heard many other people raise, which is that the libertarian principled view for property rights is flawed. The Lockean view is flawed because it says that… You have a property right in something when you can trace title back to the original homesteader or appropriator, and you can trace title back to the current possessor by a chain of title, a bunch of contractual transfers basically, um, either in testacy or testaments, you know, wills or actual contracts or sales or assignments or donations or gifts or whatever, but you can trace the title back, and that… In reality, the world is not like that because most land, for example, that we have now, conquest or theft back in the chain of title, back in antiquity, and there's no way to trace it all the way back to, excuse me, so-called Adam, the first appropriator of the land, and therefore, according to Locke's theory, um, if it were right. Every every piece of land out there right now, or like say 90% of it, is up to challenge. Now, I think what they're doing is they're they're creating a caricature of Locke's theory, and they're wrong that Locke's theory, as he even meant it, is correct. 
and they don't have a sophisticated understanding of the way law works and how, what their principle would mean in practice. And I think it's a straw man in the sense that they are basically – most of them are usually trying to come up with just an argument to undercut our belief in property rights in land so that we don't have a complaint for their redistributionist uh, motives or schemes. Right. So if we say that property tax is theft, then they can say, well, it's only theft if you own the land. But do you own the land? Even according to your god Locke, um, you can't prove title back to the original owner, and so you don't have any right to complain if someone takes the land from you or taxes the land that you're on, etc. So basically it's, it's almost like a, um, an epistemological skeptical attack on the efficacy of reason. It's an it's a skeptical attack on the on the validity of uh, property claims that we have now uh, for the purpose of undercutting property rights, so that they can undermine property rights, so that we can't complain. So this is, I think, by and large, the purpose of these kinds of attacks. The flaw in it is shared on both the side of many libertarians and the um, and the uh, the people who. Attack the idea of of kind of a Lockean ownership of resources, including land. The flaw is this: Locke is explaining in simple terms that an unowned resource, well, that human beings need. To, well, and I'm going to combine here like Hoppe, Rothbard, Mises, and Locke, and I'm going to state what the libertarian principle is. It borrows from ideas from all these types of thinkers and the the, the ideas that they come up with um, or that they uh, that they uh, explain. Human beings live in a world of scarcity. We have to act to survive or just to exist. And as Mises explained, to act means to employ scarce means that are resources in the world, our bodies and other things. And we have to use knowledge to understand what to do with these things. So all action has a twofold nature. It employs information or knowledge, which is, by the way, why intellectual property is not legitimate because information is not a scarce resource. You don't need to have exclusive control over the knowledge that guides your actions to employ a means to achieve something. But you do need to have uh, exclusive control over that resource to use it without violent conflict with someone else, which is why we have property rights. So this is the whole point. Human beings employ these means, but when we live in, among other people, either we can have cooperation or we can have violent conflict. Now we have enough challenges in life, as I mentioned earlier, uh, 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 you know, the finiteness of life, uh, random events, tornadoes, hurricanes, wild animals. Uh, disease, drought, etc. We have enough challenges that we don't really need to add on to it the fact that uh, a neighbor might come and take our stuff and make our use of these things less secure. In fact, we can invent, we can benefit if everyone or if most people agree to cooperate with each other. And we have a division of labor economy and we have society emerges, right? Okay, so. The purpose and the function of property rules is that we agree on norms about who gets to use certain resources, scarce resources in the world. And the Lockean rule, and the one that is basically common sense and adopted by most societies that have ever existed, the rule that's adopted to one extent or the other, whether completely consistently or not, 
is first based upon just a few a few principles. But the basic one is that when there's an unowned resource, the person who first starts to use it, who transforms it, who puts it to productive use, who treats it as an economic good, or as Hoppe says, he puts a border or a boundary around it. He is the one who has a better claim than anyone else. That is basically the heart and core of property rights. That implies almost everything else. It 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 implies self-ownership because you have to own your body before you can go around the world homesteading things and have a claim to them. So it implies or rests upon the idea of, of body ownership or self-ownership. It implies the right to contractually transfer the thing to someone else because if you acquire this resource, you have the ability to get rid of it by your consent. So you give it to someone else, and that is basically the heart and core of libertarianism. So when Locke said that the first guy that owns it has the right to it, he is correct. All that means is that if you have two people have a contest or a dispute over a resource… If one of them had the resource earlier, then the second guy can't just come along and take it from him. He's called the latecomer. Hoppe talks about this in Hoppe's writings. So all it means is the insight that earlier claims are better than later claims, or earlier claims defeat later claims if there was a dispute in an arbitral court or a proceeding, something like that. Everyone takes that to mean, and what that implies is that if you could… Have the very first act of homesteading, and you could trace it over a thousand generations from the times of the past to the times of the present, and you could show a contractual transfer from A to B to C to D all the way down to the current era. Then the current guy's ownership would be the best claim in the world. There would be no one else that would be able to defeat his claim, so he would win. He would be the owner of that resource. That is an implication of Locke's theory. But what everyone assumes is that in every case you need to go backwards all the way to the beginning to have property rights satisfied. Now that is actually just simply not true. That's not the way the law works. It's not the way the law has ever worked. It's not the way the law needs to work. It's not even what Rothbard said, even the libertarian that they quote in favor of this. So what Rothbard was talking about was, listen, we recognize that we don't have this pristine world of Lockean… An ideal Lockean world where every piece of property that is used now – let's just talk about land. Every piece of land was originally appropriated by someone in a totally innocent fashion, and every single transfer from then to now, we could find a documentary evidence record for, and it was all consensual. He goes, you know, that's just not true. We know the world is not like that. There's been lots of acts of conquest, lots of acts of theft, lots of muddy records in the past. It's hard to trace records back more than one or two hundred years in most cases because of um, the record keeping of, of the past and because the past is old and it's the past and is no longer accessible. And so therefore, the fact is that most of the land we're on now in America, for example, you get the American Indian example all the time. They'll, you'll hear something like, well, if you really believe in this restitution stuff, I guess the American Indian should get Manhattan back. Something like that. Now they, they, they bring that out like it's a drop-dead argument, like, like they know that there's no way any civilized person could accept that conclusion. So they're, they're trying to do a reductio ad, ad absurdum. right? They're trying to show that your premises are absurd because they lead to absurd results. 
Now, my view is that actually if a particular person could show a good claim to a part of real estate in New York City or in fact all of New York City or anywhere else for that matter, they should get ownership of it. I mean, that's, the, that's actually the answer. Okay, That's not a problem. In other words, how could you say that the person with a better claim to a resource shouldn't get it? Okay, But the fact is this is an unlikely problem for many reasons because these are collectives, number one, so it's hard to show any particular person is going to have a better claim than the current owner, and that's what Rothbard said. What Rothbard said was unless someone can show up showing incontrovertible proof of a claim to the resource that you're currently using… Then you should be presumed to be the owner, and what that means is that you have a better claim than anyone else in the world because you are actually possessing it. That's why the maxim arose in the law. Possession right. is nine-tenths of the law because there's a practical aspect to this, and that is we want to let people be able to use things, and the only way we can know who owns something is by having an assumption, right? having a prejudice, a pre… A, a, um, a, an initial assumption, um, a presumption of who owns it, and the presumption always has to be the current possessor, just like you're presumed to own your body because you're the one operating your body. right? Now, if you, someone can prove that he raped my little sister and tortured her, so that's why I have him enslaved, then otherwise you look like an enslaver. Or if you're beating someone to hell, you look like the aggressor unless you can prove, overcome the presumption, unless you can prove… I'm doing this as retaliation for something he did to me, but the presumption is that you know what it looks like. So someone using a resource has to be presumed to be the owner of it and is the owner of it unless someone else can come up with a better claim. So the way it has always worked in the law is that if A and B – and this is the real law in the real world today, in today's world… If A and B have a property dispute over a tract of land, let's say between – you have two farms, but there's a 20-foot stri strip of land between them, which is sort of not clear who owns it because the fence has been here before. The fence has been here before, and former Jones and former Black, they both claim this strip of land. Well, they're finally going to go to court to try to sort it out. Okay, So what they do is the court doesn't make them trace their title claims all the way back to Adam. Or to some guy 700 years ago, he just makes them trace it back. Hold on a second. Are you still there? I'm here. Okay. He makes them trace it back to what's called a common ancestor in title. So if they both say that they both agree that 120 years ago, you know, former Blue owned it, but then each one says I got title from former Blue through my chain of title. Well, then the court doesn't need to go beyond former Blue. Because now we have a solid stopping point. Okay, so we stop at blue, and then we look at the evidence they can produce. Who were who were former blue's heirs? What contracts did former blue signed? And if former blue signed a contract with with ancestors in title to both current claimants, then we see which one was first. So if he gave it to A, and then he also tried to give it to B two years later, well then he had nothing left to give B. So all the people that claim title from B don't have a good claim. The point is this is legal technicalities, and there's a way to work it out, but you don't have to trace title back to the original owner. You only have to trace it back far enough to settle the dispute between the real-world people that dispute it. Okay? So the point is that the, the fact that there are 
conquest in human history. The fact that there are was I call it taints or original sin in the title to property people use now is not an invalidation whatsoever of the libertarian Lockean idea of property rights, which is rooted in the Lockean insight about the fact that the earlier user has a better claim than the later user. So in other words, Locke's insight is not that you have title to property if and to the extent you can trace it all the way back to the very first user. That's not his insight. His insight would be that if you can do that, you do have good title because you're going to defeat everyone in the world. But his insight is simply that the earlier claimer claimant has a better title than later claimants, and that's sufficient to have a workable property rights system in the real world. And this is what's not understood by people who don't have much legal understanding or who haven't thought about the way these rules work out. Um, and th this is why I I always find that their criticisms are lacking in something, lacking in legal sophistication, lacking in honesty, lacking in in, in, in depth, um, and just lacking in total coherence. Well, so I'm that was kind of the main point I wanted to uh, discuss with you here today because that is a common problem you hear from people that want to undercut libertarianism. Uh, you'll hear it from left libertarians or mutualist types or anti-property types who don't like – or Georgists who don't like the idea of property rights and land being absolute. Mm -hmm. you know, they want to say land is something different because – and then they'll often use this as an example. You well, can't say that a, a Georgist single tax – or you can't say that uh, government regulations of property through um, zoning laws, all these things. You can't say that violates your absolute rights to land because, after all, you don't have absolute rights to the land anyway. You didn't create the land, right? Well, and in I, fact, I, I, and in fact, you didn't even get it from an owner because he got it from someone who got it from someone who stole it from someone else. So right. they they want to say that there's original sin that taints your title to your your claim to title to your land, which opens gives. Which gives you no or no reason to complain if someone else regulates it. But what these arguments all miss is that everyone who wants to regulate your use of your land, if they want to take it from you for eminent domain, if they want to threaten to take it from you if you don't pay property taxes or tribute, if they want to regulate it by zoning laws, they all are claiming ownership themselves of the land. Right. And their, their basis is that you don't have a good… Lineage of title to the property all the way back to Adam, but they have no claim whatsoever except that criticism. Well, a, well this actually, is the problem, right? Well, actually, interesting enough, John Locke himself was a Henry Georges because he had the Lockean proviso, which basically said, you know, uh, to the creator belongs a creation, and you do not create land, and therefore. Uh, everyone has uh, an equal share of property and land, and if you take more than your equal allotment, where there's not enough for other people, you have to pay some tax. Uh, well, and, hold on. So I don't think he said. Okay, so so I I, I reject Hoppe and I and other libertarians reject the Lockean proviso. Marcus argument wasn't perfect. I don't think he said that everyone has an equal. Uh, what he was trying to say was that if there's unowned resources out there. Um, then if you take an unowned resource and start using it, no one has the right to complain, 
as long as you leave enough for everyone else. In other words, he was just trying to eliminate one possible argument you could come up with because someone could say, well, if you take this meadow, now I don't have that meadow to use anymore. And Locke says, well, yeah, but there's enough around for you to go use yourself, so you still don't, you still don't have a good, a, good, a good argument. And you have to remember Locke was res responding to Filmer who was trying to come up with this kind of feudalistic, monarchistic defense of monarchies by saying that basically Adam owned the world in the beginning. This is what Filmer was saying, I think. Adam owned the world because – so God created the universe. God owns the universe. God gave title to the earth to Adam and Adam's descendants, and Adam's descendants all own that title. And if you trace it like that, then you could you could come up with an argument that all the existing monarchies in the you know 1600s they have legitimate title to own the land of the UK or the kingdom, or not the UK, the England or the the local kingdom or the local country, because they could trace their title back to an original descendant of Adam, etc. So it was this kind of convoluted argument in defense of the existing status quo that Filmer was doing, and Locke was trying to counter that, and he was doing it by saying, no, 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 here's, here's really what happened. So he bought into the kind of theological myth about everything to counter Filmer's picture, his story, and his picture was… God gave the earth in commons to man, but it wasn't owned yet because it hadn't been transformed. So when he says in commons, you could take that as you did and say everyone has an equal share in it. But the modern libertarian would say what that means is it's unowned, and that's really what Locke meant. It's not claimed yet, so therefore it's it's right. not owned yet. So that's what Locke was trying to counter, and uh, okay. in any case. Yeah. Well, no, because I I mentioned because one of my professors is a Henry Georgist, and you know, and so in class, you know, he said. Um, uh, to the creator belongs a creation, but you do not create land, and he just used he's just used land as any natural resource. Uh, and so, right. uh, which I said to him, look, if I'm walking in a in the woods, and let's say the woods is um, not privately owned theoretically, and I find a rock, do I not own that natural resource, which clearly I did not create? Uh, I mean, I think to the discoverer belongs the creation also. Well, uh, so th th this is the another related flaw I think that infects all of political theory nowadays, which your teacher is repeating, which I've heard so many times it's uh, it's nauseating. Um, it's it's this idea that that ownership comes from creation, and that we own what we create, and that we only own what we do create, and that what we do create is value, and we own value. So almost every step of that chain of reasoning is incorrect. First of all, you, we don't have a property right in value because value is just a subjective estimation of other people. Right. You don't own that any more than you own your reputation because you don't own what other people think. You don't own their brains. Um, um, it's not true that you own what you create. Otherwise, you could own your children forever, right? Exactly. <laughs> this is argument by a possessive pronoun, right? Like, if you can put the word you're in front of it, then you own it. Like, America is my country. Well, I guess I own America. You know, that's my <laughs> wife. These are my memories. Well, I use the word "my." It's a possessive pronoun. I own them, and this is literally. It sounds like a hyperbole or a caricature of what they say, but it's. This is literally what some people argue. Um, it's my labor. Um, I own, and and then also the idea that you only own something if you create it. 
Now, in a technical Austrian sense, that might be correct, but only in a hypersubjective Austrian sense. So what, what does that mean? So you can never get a gift? Well, I guess they would make an exception for contract, but so, to have ownership of something initially, someone has to create it, they would say. That's the implication right. of their ideas, and the Austrian idea is that goods are subjective, like they're characteristic as a good, like what type of good it is, whether it's a consumer good or a capital good. Yeah. depends upon how the user regards it. As Hoppe points out, different goods have a mixed character. They're partly capital goods, partly consumer goods, and that might change over time depending upon how you want to use it as a user. And by the same token, whether something's a good or not at all depends upon whether it's regarded as a good by someone. If you have empty space, empty land in the middle of Australia right now, or that no one is, or, or Antarctica or outer space, it's just not a good at all because it's not the subject of human action. No one is treating it as a good. No one is demonstrating their preference to regard it as a good, but what that means in a sense is that if I find an unowned field in the middle of the prairie in virgin territory and I build a farm there, in a sense I'm creating the good because it, the good didn't exist as an economic good before. Now, as a, as a metaphysical fact, you're not really creating a good. You're creating wealth. Um, as as a as a as an economic concept, the good is arising because of the subjective nature of goods. But in any case, none of that means that as a general rule, um, we have to create things for them to exist. As a physical matter, as a metaphysical matter, there are material resources in the world, some of which are exploited and treated as as used as means by actors, and some which are not. The ones which are not can be considered as unowned. And when they start to be appropriated by someone, they establish a claim to that resource if they want to claim it as a property right. right? If they establish sufficient borders or boundaries so that other people can see that there's a claim, what the boundaries are, how to avoid trespassing on it, and who the owner is. In other words, what's the connection? There has to be a link between the claimant and the resource. That's how a property system must work can work and has to work. Okay, So all these things are fairly simple, to be honest, and natural, and this is what legal systems that actually work in the world, even the status ones, have always done and must always do to some extent to be a legal system at all. And this is what is unknown or ignored by the people who just have this blithe, hand-waving dismissal of Lockean or Rothbardian ethics by saying, well, you don't really own your land anyway. You know, there's a saying I think it's from Rand or somewhere like um, I think it's from uh, Francisco's money speech about um, beware of the man who says that uh, money is the root of all evil. Right. Yeah. Because, because he's coming after your money. <laughs> In other words, people that tell you don't worry about money so much, they're always want your money. You yeah. <laughs> to take your money. Right, it's it's right. It's that that comic of you probably saw that comic of one of these Occupy Wall Streets, and it says share the wealth, and when some bum next to him says, "Can I have your iPhone?" Right? Yeah, yeah it's the same thing. So it, anyone who starts challenging the moral basis of materialistic possessions, I always say, hold on to your wallet because they're coming after it. <laughs> you right. know, and so it's the same thing. Um, all property rights, or all rights, are property rights, and rights to control scarce resources. You know, so these people that 
un try to undermine the basis of the claims that current users of resources have. They always want the resources themselves. So right. if that's the case, what we really have is a contest or a dispute between A and B over like my house or my for my land. So then the question is who has the better claim to it? And the person claiming it, the the, the outsider, the, the latecomer, has no claim whatsoever to it except a, a criticism in your chain of title. That doesn't give them a better chain of title. No. I agree. And, and it, it's, it's actually interesting talking about to the creator belongs the creation. I heard someone argue that the reason taxation is not theft is because we have legal tender laws and the Federal Reserve creates a fiat currency. Yeah. And therefore, a taxation is in theft because you wouldn't even have fiat currency if it were for the government and therefore they own all the government. Well, of course, you, know, you, have money. A, you have to be a statist or a. I've heard some people refer to minarchists now as mini-statist. You have to be a mini-statist or a statist to have that reasoning because you have to believe the government's legitimate or the state is legitimate in the first place, right? To even make that argument, um, it's like they, they 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 forget the process by which this 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 money system arose. They 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 want to analogize it to a private contractual system where, look, it's like if you go to Walmart and Walmart issues Walmart bucks and everyone agrees to use those Walmart bucks with the following conditions. That's just what the Federal Reserve does. It's like, yeah, but we didn't agree to the Federal Reserve. And then they'll use this generational argument. Well, everyone living now was just born into this country, so you're born into a certain set of rules. It's almost right. like the, only the first generation has the right to liberty, and after that, we're all slaves. That's so why. No that's why I always anymore. hated. That's why I always hated the terms uh, First Amendment right and Second Amendment right. There's no such thing as a First Amendment. There's a right to freedom of speech and freedom of religion. There's no such thing as a Second Amendment. There's a right to the to the right to bear arms. Because saying there's a First Amendment implies that the only reason you have these rights is because some dead guy, two hundred years ago, wrote it down that you do. Well, and those, and those arguments are ignorant because they ignore the text of the Ninth Amendment, which explicitly says, um, you know, the failure to enumerate rights in the first eight amendments shall not be construed to deny or disparage others. Right. So anyone who argues that, like, if they say, well, the Second Amendment, I don't believe the Second Amendment protects a right to individual right to bear arms. It was only a collective kind of militia thing. Now that's not a horrible argument. It is in itself. It's, yeah, I know. I'm just saying you could make the argument that's what the text means because it does have the militia term in there. But it making the argument itself violates the Ninth Amendment because it's it's technically irrelevant whether the Second Amendment protects the individual right to bear arms or not because even if it doesn't. That doesn't mean we don't have the right because that's what the Ninth Amendment says. Right, and also it it says the the right it says uh, in order for the militia to be well regulated, the right of the people should not be infringed. That's in contrast. That's like it's that's like to be a statist for a second. If you have an amendment, it says in order to uh, ensure that businesses. Um, are well regulated. The right of the government to regulate them shall not be infringed, right? Well, so it's, it's in contrast to the militia. It's well, in order to keep the militia in check. The people have a right to bear arms. Well, the 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 um, the um, statists are not always consistent in their interpretation of the Constitution. Of course, so. One right. example is in the Second Amendment, they 
put a lot of meaning into the initial phrase. Um, uh, something about a well-regulated militia being essential to the freedom of the people, something like that, right? So they think that 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 first phrase is not what we call merely precatory in the law. In other words, it's not just an explanation; it's an actual limitation on what comes next. But they don't do the same, by the way, in the patent clause and the copyright clause, which says um, to promote the progress of science and the arts, Congress has to have the power to establish uh, limited monopolies, you know, for inventions and writers discoveries um, if they were to treat the copyright clause like they treat the second amendment then they would have to say the patent and copyright acts are unconstitutional unless and if and to the extent someone can demonstrate with empirical proof that these laws actually do promote the progress of science and the arts and they actually don't they clearly don't <laughs> So by that argument, patent and copyright are clearly unconstitutional, and actually that is my view. <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think they are unconstitutional, partly for that reason and partly for others. Right, and I mean, and one of the things that's – I mean you said status are inconsistent. I think the only thing they're consistent on is the fact that they're inconsistent. Um, but one of the things that I find interesting is that anyone who justifies the state – only justifies the state that they li live in, meaning they wouldn't accept these arguments universal. So like you were giving, for example, well, by living here, you agree to the rules. So I say, oh, so why are you complaining about North Korea? Right? Right? Because if your argument is by living here, it's consent, when the logical implication is all governments are voluntary, so it's a contradiction to complain about some dictator, right? Yeah, th there's an implication there. Um I was going to look up there's this there's this quote I love from Mises you probably heard it before uh hold on a second which you just reminded me of um where he says that uh let me see if I can find it let's see Yeah here's the quote No no so this is from Human Action no socialist author ever gave a thought to the possibility that the abstract entity which he wants to vest with unlimited power whether it's called humanity, society, nation, state, or government, could ever uh, could act in a way of which he himself disapproves. So, so that's the idea. They they always are in favor of their current government. I mean, you see the same thing happening right now, like with uh, the uh, the uh, supermajority requirements in the Senate for um, filibusters, which the Democrats changed a little bit because they were getting frustrated with the, the Republicans blocking. Um, uh, approvals of uh, certain laws or, or Obama court appointees or something, and at the time they were kind of hesitant to change the rule because they knew that one day the tables would be turned and they'd be in the minority as they are now, and that's what's happened, right? So now they're in the minority, and the Republicans had promised that if they got in the majority, they would undo those rules and put it put the supermajority requirements back in place the way they were before, the filibuster requirements. Mm -hmm. But now that they're in the in power, they're going to hold off <laughs> of reforming the laws because if they did that, they'd be lim limiting their own power and giving the Democrats more of a, ve a veto power. So this is the point. I mean, you can't just imagine the state's going to be the people that you're controlling as your puppets. You know, it, 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 the, the state is going to have a will of its own and an interest of its own. And if you empower it, it's going to go, as we say, wilding, right? It's gonna, it's gonna do whatever it can to exist. Mm -hmm. But we are the government, don't you know that? Um, yeah, that's another one. 
That that one. First of all, whenever I hear that, I'm like, I think I know if I'm part of something or not. <laughs> like, I know. I know. Like, well, like, people make analogies. They try to analogize different part, way the state works to private society institutions, even though the analogies never quite fit. But they just want to say it and be done with it. You know, it's like they'll say, "Well, well, you're a member of the." You, or they'll just say something, some some arbitrary assertion that makes no sense. Like, if you say, "Well, why am I a member of the state?" They'll say, "Well, if you don't like it, leave it." It's like, well, that's <laughs> <laughs> it's not, that's not an argument. I don't even understand. That's not even that's just a rebuttal. Like that's just and an assertion. It's also a contradiction because a lot of people say, "Well, the government is here to serve our interest." Well, if every time we're complaining, we have to get the fuck out, that doesn't sound like they're serving our interests. It's not like they have to leave. We have to leave. That makes them the landlord and us the tenant. Well, not only that, you can't leave without the government's permission anymore. So there's all these – you know, there's all these uh, – um, I mean if you, if you, leaving doesn't do any good. If, if I move to England, I still have to pay taxes to the – if I move to a zero-tax country, I still have to pay taxes to the U.S., so the only way to really leave is to renounce my citizenship. But if you do that, they won't let you actually physically leave unless you pay all your back taxes and you agree to be bound for taxes for the next 10 years or something like that in the new country. So basically there's a there's a fiscal Berlin Wall around the US right now. So when these liberals tell you if, or the conservatives whoever says this, you know, uh, America pal, love it or leave it or if you don't like it, why don't you just leave? It's like, well they won't let me leave. <laughs> It's the same thing with the copyright. People say, well, if you don't believe in copyright, why do you copyright your books? I'm like, I don't copyright them. Your government copyrights them, and they won't let me get – well, why don't you renounce it? I said, because they won't do any good. I still have a copyright. It's bizarre how people try to turn you into a hypocrite for being subject to the effects of laws that they're trying to impose on you. It's it's just like when when people criticize – I don't know, someone like Clarence Thomas or someone for uh, opposing affirmative action. They'll say something like, well, you know, he's a hypocrite for opposing affirmative action when he was a beneficiary of it. It's like, well, first of all, I thought you liberals how do you know he's a beneficiary of it? You know? Hey, maybe black. he maybe he would have made it on his own merit. Maybe he's not the idiot that you racists assume he is, you know? <laughs> and number two, um, you, you know, um, uh, I, I don't know. It's just it's it's it's, it's their, their chain of argument is so bad uh, on on these kinds of things. I you see this kind of reasoning all all the time. I don't know if it's dishonesty or stupidity or what, but uh, why does it have to be mutually exclusive? Yeah, I know it's a combination. It's a combination. But and they're not consistent. I mean, no one they don't say. Well, if you don't like North Korea, then you can leave North Korea. They just say it about their own country that they happen to live in. Well, uh, and, and you know, another inconsistency I notice all the time is this: uh, um, uh, liberals and, uh, like, say, American Jews, for example. You know, uh, well, the American Jews are big fans of Israel, right? Especially liberal Jews. But Israel is a explicitly religious state, right? Mm -hmm. In fact, most countries in the world are, like, even England has an official religion, right? Anglicanism, right? Um, and yet, if America did anything even approaching that, you would hear a hue and cry, right? And yet, there's a special exception made for Israel and for other countries. I, it's just 
the, the double standards drive me insane. Mm-hmm. Not that I want U.S. to be a Christian country. I don't. I I I just posted something recently that's that upset some status, but I thought it was a I thought it was a valid point, and I I wrote um. If you don't like getting raped, then move to a country without rape. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Or if you don't like if you don't like not having abortion access being easily provided, move to a country with abortion. Yeah, you could come up with any argument like that. It's, it's what, just, what I sometimes say to people when they say, um, uh, if you don't like it here, get out. I say, well, if you don't like the fact that I can stay here and bitch about it at the same time, you get the hell out. You know, why Why do I always have to leave? You're the ones who like are violent. Yeah, and... yeah why, don't you, why don't you leave? Stop complaining about your husband, your spouse beating the shit out of you and just leave. Just get a divorce <laughs> if you don't like it. Well, I, I kind of agree with that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I agree. You're an idiot for staying, but although a lot of them probably feel like trapped, that they can't leave, and who knows? But um, uh, and Lenny, of course, you have the implied consent. I think you know how is it implied consent if I explicitly dissent? Uh, but uh, you know. Well, I think it's because they're essentially collectivists, right? So they they're not individualists, so they don't view they don't view the fundamental entity, the fundamental unit of social analysis as the individual. It's these nation states, these corporation, the corporation, the corporate form of the nation state. It's the U.S., and so it's like a family, and you're born into it. That's the social, the fundamental unit of analysis. Okay, so. It's, it, so you have to consent to stay there. You have to follow by its rules to stay there. They just don't think of it in individualist terms. They don't. That's it. Why? I don't know. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I don't. Know. I think if if government is a, if government is like a family, it's my it's like then my uncle who touched me when I was nine. Um, <laughs> it's not. It's not yeah, except good... that was like once maybe, and you you, you can finally. You can finally escape him, and he finally dies. <laughs> yeah, right. But the, Uncle Sam is always there. That's the, that Lysander Spooner quote, right, about the highwayman versus the state. It's like the highwayman just robs you once. He's kind of a, a decent, honest guy. He takes a risk when he robs you because you might get shot back. He doesn't hound you forever, demanding tribute for the rest of your life, and he doesn't pretend that he's doing you a favor when he robs you either. He robs you once. It's a clean transaction, and he leaves you to go in your way. But the state, the tax man, is always there. Yeah, it's just perpetual. Um, okay, so I, I guess one other topic I wanted to talk about was obviously I I think based on our discussion you probably don't believe in it, but I'm sort of curious why it even exists, and that is the idea of a statute of limitations. I mean, to me, I I don't think there should be a statute of limitations. I think once you do something wrong, you know, I don't know why there should be a. Uh, it's not milk. Uh, I don't know why there should be an expiration date, but do you, do you know uh, what are your thoughts on that, and and maybe why so, it even exists? Technically speaking, I'm opposed to all statutes because statutes are the legislation issued by state courts. I mean, state legislatures. So you couldn't have a statute without a state. Okay, so right off the bat, it's just like copyright and IP. I mean, uh, if you understand at least patent and copyright. You realize they're both statutes, and you just couldn't have them without a state. So if you're opposed to legislation or if you're opposed to the state itself, then you can't be in favor of anything that has to be or that is a creature of legislation, such as a statute of limitations. Now, 
the reasoning behind the rule of the statute of limitations is the following. If something is done to you that's wrong, you have the right to seek redress in the courts, but you need to do it within a reasonable amount of time for several reasons. Um, well, the first reason is that if you really have a wrong done to you, why would you wait 20, 30, 40, 50 years? Right? Or if you never did pursue it in your life and 150 years down the road your, your descendant wants to bring it up against the property held by your, your ancestors or something like that, why, why would that make sense? Um, um, why would we assume that the original owner in effect decided to forgive the crime or decided not to pursue it or decided that it wasn't worth it? So that's one reason for the, for the rule. Um, the other reason is that over time, witnesses, testimony, evidence, that all gets more and more stale and harder to find. For, for the same reason or for similar reasons that you know, if someone came to you and said – like from Africa and said, I want your house because it's on land that 10,000 years ago or 2,000 years ago or even 500 years ago… Um, was owned by some great, 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 great ancestor. They're just not going to be able to prove it. So I don't think you need an actual statute of limitations, but in practice, I do think that the older a claim becomes, the more stale it becomes and the more impractical it would become to enforce it because over time, you'd just be impossible to prove your claim. Um, and the other thing is imagine a private law society, a free society where we only had private courts. Now these courts are going to have to have practical aspects to what they're going to do for their customers. right? Now let's suppose you have a customer that is just a litigious little asshole, and he wants to sue everyone, you know, file 100 lawsuits a year for $5 offenses. Now that's not really the purpose of a legal system. And it's going to invoke a lot of resources. You're going to be the you're going to be like the 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 bad customer. And if you have a jury system, you're going to be calling all your neighbors all the time to get on the damn jury for these little things because you're just a troublemaker, basically. I could see rules emerging as a practical matter, like any realistic legal system, any le realistic PDA, you know, private defense agency that you might sign up for. It's just going to say, listen, here's what we're going to show you against. We're going to show you against rape, robbery, burglary, murder, theft, but we're not going to insure you for anything less than $100. And we're not going to um, – and if you, if you file more than X lawsuits in a year or you're deemed to be a nuisance, we're going to drop you as a customer. right? Um, or if the claim is more than 30 years old, we don't want to deal with it. It's just too old. Just like you have pre-existing medical conditions… Um, exclusions when you sign up for medical insurance in the private free market. People don't want to insure you for things that happened way in the past. right? So I think as a practical matter, something like a statute of limitations, you could see that emerging in a private legal framework, which is, simply means that people would find it almost impossible or, or, or increasingly difficult to bring claims that were very old. That's all. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. think that makes total sense. No, I agree. It's sort of like a double jeopardy or 
another thing that I never understood in the law is why uh, if you have a retrial, you can't have new stuff, new information that wasn't in the original trial, right? I don't think that's that's not a rule as far as I know. Is it? I think what you're talking about is the appeal. If you have an appeal of a trial, then the appeal has to consider only evidence introduced at the lower trial court, but the appeal is usually uh, reconsidering the legal aspects of the decision, something like that. But no, if you have a retrial, I think that you can introduce new evidence. As far as I know, I'm not a litigator, so um, I think you can. But in any case, I think double jeopardy is a state rule, which I don't know if necessarily would apply in a private proceeding. In fact, double jeopardy is a criminal law rule, right? And I don't even know if we really have so much or as much of a thing called criminal law in a private law society. I think it would be more of a restitution-based um, system, maybe not a bifurcated criminal and civil court system. Cool. Uh, uh, James just uh, texted me. He wanted me to ask you your thoughts on um, Walter's libertarian concentration camp guard uh, scenario. Uh, well, I don't agree with it. <laughs> that was easy. <laughs> it's a bad. It's a bad example. I don't agree with it. I understand what he's getting at there. What he, what he's trying to. And let me explain it for people who haven't heard it. What he says is, he, actually, I can't remember the purpose of this argument. It's, it's Walter has a lot of crazy. Appetite. I think the purpose was to try to answer objections to the trolley car thing. Oh, really? I don't know. I think what Walter said was that. If you if you're a libertarian, oh, I think he was talking about whether you can work for the state or not. That was he was talking about whether I, it's legitimate I for libertarians to work I, for the no, state. No, th the argument is if you're a libertarian concentration camp guard and you, you have to kill 400 people, but you only kill 300, and you become a guard in order to save 30 lives, so you kill 370. No, 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 no. I know. I, I think the purpose of his argument, he was trying to explain why it's okay for libertarians to work for the state, and his example was if you lived in Nazi Germany. And you're a libertarian, and you took a job as a concentration camp guard. And you had to murder inmates, but you, on occasion, when you had discretion or the ability, you murdered a li one less here and there. So instead of killing 400, you killed 390. Then on net, you saved 10 lives, and so you're a good guy. But, but, which I think is bizarre. But then I don't agree with. That. I, think you're basically, I think you're a murderer, but you killed 390 people. I think you're a murderer. But but. But then he backtracks and he says that um, he says, but the families of the ones you did kill could still prosecute you, but maybe you could ask them to forgive you because you were doing what you could to save everyone you could. It's just I don't know. It's not his best argument. Walter and I are good friends, and I agree with most of his stuff, but I can't say I agree with that one. I agree. I think he was probably drunk when he came up with it. No, I wouldn't say that. No, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. You're just overly enthusiastic. <laughs> uh, no, I like Walter a lot too. I, I disagree. Plus, you don't—it's not good for a cause to talk about libertarian concentration camp guards. Uh, I, I, you know, I don't really have a strong opinion. I've heard people say that. I don't have a strong opinion on that. I, I, I don't. I don't pretend to be an expert on strategy, and I'm not a big uh, sensorial PC type. So I. I'm not too bothered by the fact that he used an unpopular kind of out there example that might offend people. I really don't care so much about that. Although you're probably right, but I I don't know. I won't I won't opine on that. I just think the logic of it is the problem. No, I agree with the logic. Murdering people is is bad, and just because you don't murder as many as you could have doesn't mean it's okay. 
I mean, I could see a version of that argument in a much less heavy-handed fashion where, you know, you're – well, here's a version. Like let's say you go to law school, and you want to be, you want to be a tax lawyer, and you want to defend companies and people from the income tax. Well, the fact is that do you know who those people want to hire? They would love to hire someone who used to work for the IRS. And the reason is because those people really know the system well, and they're going to be the better defense attorneys. So I could see a libertarian working for the IRS for three or four or five years after law school and then going and doing it on purpose just to learn the system really well. Now, if you go by the arguments of some libertarians, then basically you're a criminal as soon as you start working with the IRS, and you're subject to being shot. You know, Who's the guy that argued that? Chris Cantwell or something? Larkin Rose? No, I don't remember. Anyway, um, well, he was a, Larkin Rose Kent, was in jail for not paying taxes. No, I thought Cantwell said that that anyone who works for the state is subject to being shot. Oh yeah, 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 like, yeah. He, he, he also said it. He also said it's okay to shoot people for stealing. He also wrote a whole article criticizing the idea of proportional punishment, and that if someone violates any of your property rights, it's okay to to use any punishment. So he, he's okay with killing you if you steal a paperclip. I mean, it, it's ridiculous. Yeah, I don't. I, yeah, I don't agree with that. I don't think that's you can. I don't think you can sustain that argument. Um, <laughs> but no. my point is, so, and I'm not condoning this or arguing for it. And I didn't do it myself, but I could see someone having worked for the IRS for two or three or four years to get experience. And while you're there, what would you do? You would try to get the most experience, and you would try to minimize the harm you had to do as part of your job. Right, and so that's getting close to Walter's kind of concentration card guard thing. I think it's a, it's not a it's not an a priori thing we can deduce like what you can do in life. I don't I kind of agree with the Randian approach on this that we you don't have an obligation in life. We live in a mixed economy. We live in an unfree world. We live in a mixed world. So I don't agree with the libertarians who are so scrupulous. It's called scrupulosity, right? I think Jeff Tucker calls it scrupulosity. That, um, like, uh, if you're just a lawyer like I am, and you, I actually took the bar exam, so I, I had to swear allegiance to the state, so I'm automatically a criminal, right, or a bootlicker or something. I think that's ridiculous. <laughs> On the other hand, I, I don't think you should ever take a job um, as the president or as um, 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 as a DEA agent, because you're, or, or as a prison guard, you're actually doing evil, literally by your job, or you know the guy that executes prisoners in in, in state prisons or something. I mean, so there's got to be a practical line between between not not being a martyr by refusing to do anything. Like I don't think it's really wrong to be a professor at a state university. I agree. Okay, and I don't think it's wrong to even take welfare necessarily. I agree. I don't know if it's wise or if it's strategically a good idea, but I don't know if it's unlibertarian. Okay, but there are certain things where I think you cross the line and it gets increasingly morally more problematic and strategically more dangerous and more dangerous to your soul. And and you and you start corrupting yourself. You start telling yourself lies. You know, being a patent lawyer like I am, there's a reason almost every patent lawyer I know believes in the patent system because it it butters their bread. You know. So there's a temptation and a danger of adopting the, the, the line that promotes your self-interest. This is the same reason why in the law we have a rule of not being a judge in your own case 
or not having what's called self-help. You're not supposed to go out and be a vigilante and just execute people that you think hurt you. Even if you're right, the problem is everyone is biased in their own favor or there's a tendency. So that's why the law adopts these prophylactic rules that are designed to guard against that. And I think even in a free society, you know, if you chase down someone who harmed you and you administer punishment on the street without due process, without a trial, you might not be violating the rights. You might not have violated proportionality, but you did it in such a reckless, dangerous way that other people are going to start eyeing you with suspicion, and you're going to be treated as an outlaw yourself to some degree. And you might not be able to get insurance coverage anymore from, from PDAs because you've shown yourself to be risky and to not be followed by the rules. So there's reasons for all these um, types of uh, kind of pragmatic, common sense uh, measures, and they leak into the rules, I think. They, le they, ble they bleed into the rules themselves. Mm -hmm. So I would say it's just – it tends – it, it it does turn into a moral, personal, ethical rule about whether you should take certain positions or jobs. Mm -hmm. I just don't think that being a stock, uh, a stock trader or a, 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 an attorney or – a doctor or a professor at a university is on the other side of the line. That's just my personal, right. traditional judgment. I, I just don't see how you can come up with an argument for that. Yeah, my father loves introducing me as um, a person studying um, uh, Austrian economics, which is about how government should have no intervention in the economy, and then I'm studying this at a state school, taking out student loans. Right. Uh, yeah, but as, I, as if as if that's some kind of contradiction or something or inconsistency. It right. is not. It's and not. It's not. It's not at all. I my my belief is you you could do anything uh, and be involved in the state anyway as long as it doesn't violate the non-aggression principle. Being a teacher does not violate anyone's rights. Going into a library does not violate anyone's rights. Um, uh, could you be a policeman if you're mm. able to only enforce laws that don't have crimes. I think that's hard. That's hard. That's then, a hard one. Then perhaps, I think that's a hard one. I don't think you're gonna I, think, keep I think you could be a fireman, okay? But I don't know if you could be a policeman really right. in today's world anymore. Right. Um I mean if if you were a good policeman you'd get fired right away, put it that way. Right. So you same, could be a policeman. a judge, like a judge on any kind of major court in the US. Uh you could be a judge, but if you if you vote the way you're supposed to vote then you're becoming an aggressor and a criminal. And if you vote the way you're that you should vote as a libertarian, you're going to be impeached right away. I mean, it's just it's just these some some things are just so incompatible that it's 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 futile. Right. You know, can you be an author and write a book even though you're getting profits uh, because of the copyright system? I think yeah. I mean, you didn't create the system. You shouldn't advocate for it. Like I think it's okay to take welfare, but it's not okay to advocate for welfare. No, I agree. Because so it's okay to take welfare if you're a libertarian and you oppose welfare. Well, first no of all, no one else has the right to take welfare. First so of all, my rationale is the more libertarians take welfare, the less the non-libertarians get. So it's, I think it's in our. I want libertarians co to collect these things because then you're yeah. you're saying to the the people who support theft, see, crime doesn't pay. You don't get a big slice. Yeah. The less the, the less hand, the libertarians take from the state, the more the statists get to keep among themselves. That's that's true, but on the other hand, you don't want libertarians to be the type of people who need to be on welfare. You you would prefer the libertarians to be successful, prosperous people that are, you know, um, I I impressive examples in their communities rather than bums that need to get on welfare. So you know, I agree. 
I think you can do more good with the former than with the latter. You know, but so I would I would tell someone not to get on welfare if they can all avoid it just because of it's not the position in life you want to be in and it's probably going to trap you into dependency and all this kind of stuff. But is it unlibertarian per se? I don't I don't think so. Mm-hmm. No, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think I'm a pretty good libertarian, and I'm in New York right now. And guess what? I use the subway, so uh, yeah. I don't think there's anything. I don't think there's anything wrong with uh, doing that. But there's something wrong with petitioning them. Anyway, uh, well, you, well, one more thing. You you hear people all the time say, uh, well, the, like the the Muslim terrorists who bombed, uh, attacked New York in se- September 11th, and since then, and in fact, the ones in in the in the, in the Paris thing, I think we brought it up earlier. They they think that you're responsible when you pay taxes. So the implicit argument is that if you're just a citizen in a country, you have a moral obligation not to pay taxes because the, the government's going to use the the money to buy bombs to bomb, you know, Arabs or Muslims overseas, right? And that was one of the excuses for bombing New York City. It was the commercial hub of the U.S. But that implies that you have an obligation not to pay taxes, which means you have an obligation. To, to martyr yourself, to, to not have any kind of career or life in the West that's taxable, which means you have to become a marginal nobody loser. And I'm not saying you – I criticize people who do that. I, I don't understand it, to be honest, but I don't think you have an obligation to do that. Mm-hmm. I think there's no way to, have, to argue there's an obligation to do that. You, I think that's blaming the victim. Ta- people that are taxed are victims, especially if they disagree with the tax system. Mm-hmm. And to, to 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 implicate them in the crimes done with the resources stolen from them is to add insult to injury. I think it's wrong. I think it's blaming the victim. Uh, no, I agree. I'm like, so if I if I say taxation is theft, I should be a victim twice by not even at least using the things that I'm forced to pay for. If given the opportunity, yeah, or not having a career that is taxable, you have to, you know, you have to. What do you have to be an eBay trader and use cash and always be in fear of going to prison for income tax evasion? I mean, it's just crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. Anyway, that's that's my take. But all right, cool. Well, um, we had a long show. Great talking to you. Um, we should do this again uh, soon. Yeah, I'd like to. There's some other things we can we can visit. So uh, let's talk about it in the upcoming uh, weeks. Sounds good. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye.